Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. I ask you if you have your Bibles to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. This morning we're going to look in the scriptures and discuss together a good old-fashioned church fight. We are thankful for God's word and what it leads us and teaches us about this morning, Acts chapter 15. It's good to see everyone today. I want to remind you, it's the last Sunday of the month here at Taylor's First. We, of course, take it important, the work that we do as a body of believers. So the last Sunday of every month, at the end of every one of our morning services, we'll have our church conference. Today, by God's grace, the only thing we get to do is welcome in many new members. And so at the, immediately at the end of this service, we'll have a short church conference welcoming welcoming in many new members together, but just if you're new with us or a guest with us, just wanted to make you aware of how that might work at the end of our time together this morning. We're excited about what God is doing. We're excited to continue to walk through the book of Acts and see how the book of Acts Acts lines up really with many of the things that we have going on in the life of our church. Hopefully you have heard about our October as our month of impact considering how we as believers are sent out into the world. And so we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. This morning, as I said, we're going to look at a good old confrontation, if you will, in the book of Acts. And hopefully, by God's grace, we will see how that confrontation was handled, how it was handled for God's glory, and how on the other side of it, the gospel remains pure and supreme as the witness that we take to the world. And so if you will, turn with me, Acts chapter 15. Hopefully, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I think it'll be on the screen if you do not. At the end of chapter 14, we came as Paul and Barnabas had returned to, uh, from their first missionary journey. And if you remember, they simply declared all that God had done for them and through them. And so they were giving the glory to God to the church at Antioch. It ends as they remain there a little time with the disciples. So Acts 14 ends with this positive note of the advancement of the gospel. And then Acts 15, starting in verse 1, we see what happens next. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. As we look to this word today, mold us and teach us by it. Shape us, Father, into people who are gospel-centered and believe in the, the pure, true gospel, Father, that is to be proclaimed to all people. And help us, Father, to be relying upon that very gospel, even as we live now. God, you are kind to us in, in showing us passages like these from the scriptures. And so, God, uh, help us to learn from them in every way. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Again, Acts 14 ends with Paul and Barnabas recounting what the Lord did through them, with them, on their first missionary journey with the church at Antioch, the church that sent them out, the church that sent them on. And so they come back and they were given their missions report, and it was a glorious work that was going on. And this is not the first time that they had seen this work amongst the Gentiles. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 10, what Peter spoke about here in chapter 15 is where the gospel went to the Gentiles through Peter and Cornelius. And, and many had, had struck in, at all at how God had reached even the Gentiles through that time as well. But the same thing happened in chapter 11 that happens here in chapter 15. When the gospel goes to the Gentiles, it is not met with just sheer joy. It's not met with just excitement and, and happiness for what God is doing among them, although many do meet that way. And the church in Antioch rejoices and celebrates, but, but when the gospel goes to the Gentiles in chapter 10, in chapter 11, immediately some come down to argue with them about the possibility of this. Well, here we have the same thing in chapter 15. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles, and so it is met with joy by the church Yet chapter 15 begins with a word, a word of somewhat confrontation, right? The word is but. They're there, they're having joyous time, they're with the church celebrating all that God has done, but, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. The joy that they had and the excitement that was there in the church, the excitement of the advancing of the gospel, the excitement of the missionary report of Paul and Barnabas comes to a halt in the text in Acts chapter 15. It ends with that word, but. They're rejoicing, they're celebrating, but some came down with a complaint. Some men came down teaching and telling them that unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Here the idea and the complaint is given. That in order for the Gentiles to truly have salvation, they're going to have to take the rite of circumcision. A rite that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, whenever God made his uh, covenant with Abraham. And, and to sign or seal that covenant with Abraham, he gave him that rite of circumcision that would testify to the sealing of the promise. And so from that point on, circumcision became the identity marker of all of those who were Jews that they believed in what Moses gave them, what Abraham was promised, what Moses gave them, and what the fathers proclaimed. Circumcision became the sign that testified to them following after the law of Moses. And so these men that came down in Acts chapter 15 were referred to as Judaizers. They were Jews who had converted to Christianity, but they taught obedience to the law of Moses and that that obedience was necessary for salvation. And so here, make no hint here of what they're saying they are circumcised according to custom Moses. You cannot be saved unless you are. So it's not just that the gospel becomes the most precious thing for them. No, it's Jesus plus something. In other words, the formula works out for them. Sure, you can have Jesus, but it's Jesus for their formula plus the works of the law equals salvation. Y'all hear that? Now, understand, I'm a humanities kind of guy. So I have zero idea about really how math works. One of the great lies my teacher told me. Now, I will give her a pass because I remember it quite well. She told me back in the late 1900s <laughs> that you better stay up on your math because you won't have a calculator in your pocket all the time. <laughs> Y'all see what I got? I'm just going to pretend like she didn't know. But here what... We're saying is there's a formula for these Judaizers that to come to Christ or to come to salvation, to truly find salvation, that it's Jesus. Sure, you can talk about Jesus plus the works of the law. It's not just Jesus. It's plus other things you must do. Therefore, you must be circumcised if you're going to find salvation. Now, clearly, that's not met with universal acceptance. In fact, I, I like the, the way, the subtlety that Luke puts this when he says, they came, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. Y'all hear how that works? I want to go ahead and, and, and state that some voices were probably raised. Because for Paul and Barnabas, this struck at the very heart of what just happened and what they just witnessed for their two-year missionary journey as they turned to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 13 said, and many of them believed. And it struck to the heart of the testimony before of Peter. And so ultimately now for Paul and Barnabas, they believe that if you accept what these men are saying, you have surrendered the very glory of the gospel itself. If you accept that it's Jesus plus something else in order to be saved, then you have surrendered the glory and the power and the majesty of the gospel itself. So no small dissension arises. Therefore, the church in Antioch decides we need to send this on up the line. There it tells them, that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church. Here, Paul and Barnabas are sent again. 
Remember, they were sent back in chapter 13 as they were sent off to proclaim the gospel amongst the, the nations, if you will, and take it to the Gentiles. Well, here they are sent again. And what I would like to say is this sending of the church of Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, while it may seem inconveniencing or it may seem aggravating because dissension has risen up, this sending out is just as important as before. Because the gospel was at stake and what was at the very heart of their missionary journey was what would they proclaim and what would they tell other people. And so this must be clarified. So they were sent out for this important task to go to the church, to go to the church in Jerusalem and to see what they would say. You see here, of course, the importance of the church, the body of believers that we don't act and, and operate in silos. We, we work together for the glory of the gospel and the testimony of the saints together as the church. And so they want to hear the leadership, the elders and the leaders of the church, and what is it that they would have them. You also see something I think quite interesting. I think there's a testimony here of Paul and Barnabas that they're not really concerned about how this thing is going to play out. In other words, if they were going and thinking, you know what? Maybe these men were right. Maybe, maybe we should add something else to the gospel. Then they probably would pack their stuff up and, and just kind of put their head down and head off to Jerusalem. But notice what it says. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria. And what do they do? Let me tell y'all what God is doing. No hesitancy into hold back because something may change. No hesitancy into thinking that, you know what, maybe we should, we should wait and see what the church says. No, they knew in their heart the testimony and the power of the gospel that God had provided. And so they go and they share along the way and they come to Jerusalem in verse 4. And they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared, again, the same words that were used above in chapter, at the end of chapter 14, verse 27. They declared all that God had done with them, with them. Now, as they declare it to the church, again, an instance comes up and a challenge arises. This challenge seems a little bit different, though. First of all, let's note what it says. It says in verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This time it seems a little different. He doesn't say this before in the passage. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says some men came down. But here in verse 5, it says some what? Believers. In other words, Paul and Barnabas at the church in Jerusalem as they relate all that God has done. Now there's some questions that are arising within the church from believers. Now understand the text is not flippant with that word. These are believers. And in fact, this should be uh, quite astonishing to us. Because if we remember, probably Jesus' greatest opponents other than the devil himself in the Gospels are who? The Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones that wanted to, to put him to death. The Pharisees were the ones that despised him. They wanted to end him. That was their desire. It was the Pharisees that sold him out. It was the Pharisees that pushed him toward the cross. It was the Pharisees that set up the plan with Pilate. It was this leadership that despised what Jesus was preaching and teaching. But now, what do you have in the church? You have some Pharisees who have believed. In and of itself, that's amazing, right? 
In and of itself, you see the greatest opponents of Jesus. Some have repented and trusted in Christ by faith. Some had come to him, depending upon him. And so now as Paul and Barnabas are coming, you have some of these believers from this Pharisee's background who are trusting in Jesus, but they're raising this up and saying, well, shouldn't they be circumcised? Now, it doesn't tell us this in verse 1. In fact, I would think verse 1 are these, these maybe some men who are just looking to cause some trouble, who are, who are just trying to set up some things in the church, who are just being contentious and, and trying to shut down what Paul and, and, and Barnabas are doing. But, but here you have maybe some well-meaning believers who come from a background where this was so important to them, and they're trying to fix in their head, how does this work now? Some believers raise this. And what happens and what we see is true. And we know this. Sometimes believers in Christ have disagreements, don't they? Sometimes. We disagree over preferences. What we like or what we don't like and, and what we think. And oftentimes, by the way, we elevate our preferences to law, don't we? I mean, we take our preferences and set them up as this is most important to us. As if our preferences are what's law. We, we argue or we hold to some traditions. Some traditions that we think that, that some way they're written in stone. You know, I had, and I, and I don't want to pick on anybody. I really don't. In fact, I wrote in my notes, don't pick on anybody. <laughs> but it's quite often that we think things have been around since Jesus' day when they're new in and of themselves. They just started when we were young, you know? Our traditions oftentimes get in the way. Our preferences oftentimes get in the way. And what happens is we're going to have conflict when we elevate our preferences and our traditions and our misunderstandings above the gospel itself. Many of our disagreements at their very essence have to do with pride. Sin still affects our relationships. Sin still affects our thoughts. It still affects our ideas. And sometimes that pride even creeps into this. So we need to deal with the reality of conflict. Oftentimes when conflict takes place within the church, what's the first thing that happens? Some people just say, I'm leaving. They're fighting. Well, my friends, anywhere you go, you're going to find it. Conflict is real. Just have a family <laughs> and see it. And live with it. And the reality of what it means to live as believers, this side of the gospel, is that we not don't have, what is that? it's not that we don't have conflict, it's like that we have conflict and we handle it in a godly, faithful way. Where we set aside our pride, we set aside our preferences, we set aside our traditions to see what it is that God would have us to do. We must deal with the reality of conflict. But not only that, we as believers must learn to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Y'all know that comes with the gospel itself? The gospel demands us to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong in essence. And if that's the gospel, then we live out the gospel with others. So how do we maintain this? This is exactly Paul, who maybe seeing this played out in Acts chapter 15, wrote to the Ephesians when he says, when he says to the Ephesians in, in chapter 4, I therefore as a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
eager to maintain the humility of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says we must be eager to maintain unity. Eager to maintain it. And what is his formula, if you will, for maintaining it? Humility, gentleness, patience, love with one another. Bearing with one another in love. Maintaining this unity in it. And so for Paul, what we see here, maybe in Acts 15, is exactly this. The believers were eager to maintain their unity. And something had come up. Something had come up to question it. Something had come up to maybe drive a hole or a wedge between it. These believers of the Pharisee party had raised a question. Now surely again, notice what may happen. Some men come up. They ask this question about the gospel. They're confronted. There's a a dissension. They come back. Paul and Barnabas tell what happened, tell everything. And then the Pharisee believers raise their hand and say, "But, but shouldn't we want them to be circumcised? Shouldn't this be true? Maybe they had a legitimate concern. What does it look like to be a believer? What does it look like on the other side of salvation? What does our life should look like? They may have had a legitimate concern, but they surely had a wrong conclusion. They surely had a wrong conclusion. Their concern would be, how do we make the Gentiles who we read about in the scriptures are unclean? How do we make them clean? Their concern would be, how do, how do we deal with their sins when they don't have the sacrificial system in their background and in their history as we do? Maybe those are true concerns, but they came to the wrong conclusion. Jesus is the one that makes us clean. Jesus is the ultimate and final sacrifice. And so when Peter hears of this, it tells us in verse 6, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Peter hears of this. This is Pentecost Peter. This is Peter who's the voice in the first part of Acts. This is Peter who stands with, with some position of influence over the other uh, uh, apostles and leaders in the church. Peter stands up. And it's fitting that Peter tells. And he gives a short little message here that has three clear points. First of all, his testimony of God's revelation. First, he says, listen, Peter stands up. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you. In other words, God chose me, he's going to say. God made a choice among you. God chose me that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. In other words, let's let's take this off of Paul, who may be contentious in himself because Paul was a Pharisee who held the coats and stone. There's maybe a little bit of question. We saw that early on about Paul and and who this is and and what's going on. But now Peter, Peter was there from day one. And Peter Peter had had, had been there in Acts chapter 2 when Peter had been in prison and Peter had been beaten and Peter steps up and says, look, this isn't Paul and Barnabas just coming up with something. You remember this happened to me. And God had revealed his testimony, his revelation through Peter there in Acts chapter 9 and 10. 
He revealed it through Peter to pretend that he should go to the Gentiles. Remember how the Spirit showed up to Peter. The Spirit showed up to Cornelius. They came down. They met. Cornelius, a Gentile, believed, a Roman centurion. And then the Holy Spirit came in and filled Cornelius and all those who believed amongst his family. And the gospel came to the Gentiles. Peter struggled with it. Peter was concerned about this. I don't know what in the world happened, you know. And then the next thing you know, Peter has a dream where the Lord tells him and declares everything that was unclean, clean. Y'all remember that's the story about how we can now eat bacon? And so we have that story in Acts 10. Everything that was unclean is now clean. And so you can take the gospel to the Gentiles. That was, that was Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And, and we saw how that, that worked in Peter. And Peter says, you remember that testimony that I have? That's God's revelation to me. God revealed himself to me to show me that the Gentiles must go forward. Now understand Peter's special position. Peter is an apostle who the Lord will use to bring his revelation to us through the New Testament. And so when we consider what we are to do in conflict, we do just like Peter does. We look to the revelation of God. We're not looking for another dream. Peter's already had that. We're looking to see what that dream taught us as the Lord revealed himself to the apostles. And the apostles become the foundation for everything we do in the New Testament. And so we look to the New Testament and we say, what is it that we would have us to do? Peter says, first and foremost, it's the revelation of God that we look to, not man at all. But then he says the next part. He says, we got to testify to the condition of every heart. To the condition of your heart. He says, you remember my testimony, how, how the Gentiles heard and believed and the Spirit came, in verse 8, and God, just this little note here, he puts, sets it off in commas, who knows the heart? God who knows the heart. You see, remember uh, going back to the Old Testament, to that, that famous passage where Samuel's looking for the next king. And Jesse brings all of his sons up. You remember that? He brings all lines, all of his sons up, and they're not any of them. And they're like, who, who is this son? Well, I got one left, and he's a, he's a ruddy little scrawny kid out taking care of the sheep. And he says, bring him in. And he says, that's the king. It was David. But do you remember that line, that line Samuel says? The Lord does not look at the outside. He looks at the heart. Remember that? That's a an axiom by which we must live by. It's not the outside that the Lord looks upon. It's the heart that the Lord looks upon. The heart and where it stands before God is what ultimately matters. And what we learn when we read through the scriptures, the testimony of God's word, and the testimony that we see around us, it's the heart that is deceitful above all things and wicked, as Jeremiah 17 says. It's the heart that is deceitful. This is your regular reminder from this pulpit, from this church, don't follow your heart. People may say that to be the case, but in the scriptures, the heart is more deceitful above everything else, and it's the heart that is wicked and points us to all different evils. In fact, Jesus said it himself in Mark's gospel when he says, out of the heart of man comes all evil thoughts, sexual morality, pride, lust, arrogance. It's out of the heart that comes these things. So our problem is that we need a new heart, not that we need some outside superficial change. You see, that's what circumcision was. Circumcision was just a sign of something else. What really mattered was the heart. In fact, Moses himself said, look, you must circumcise your heart before God. 
In other words, you must change your heart and your life, but you don't have the power or capacity to do those things. What Peter is saying is when you make the gospel plus something else, especially when that something else is either race or cultural or whatever language or whatever other thing that you have, what you have done is cheapen the gospel and you've overlooked the main problem and the main problem is your heart. The main problem is your heart. And all of us, Jew or Gentile, wherever you're from, North Carolinians, South Carolinians, Yankees, Southerners, all of us, all of us have a wicked heart if it's not for God. And that heart stands condemned before him. Paul will put it like this to the Corinthians, I consider no one according to the flesh. It's the heart that matters. Where does your heart stand? That's what Peter says. And because it's the heart, now his third point is there's no distinction. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. There's no distinction. If, if we understand that God's revelation is supreme, then we know that the heart is what's most wicked, not anything outward. And if the heart is what's most wicked, there's no distinction between us, the Jews or the Gentiles. All of us are sinners who stand condemned before God. And so he says there's no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples. He's saying we couldn't keep the law. Now you're trying to make them keep the law. Why are you placing this yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor have? No, we couldn't bear. But we believe that we will be saved through what? Grace. We discussed this last week. The amazing nature of grace, right? That God would save a sinner like you and me. So Peter's saying, look, the revelation of God is what's supreme here. Not any man-made idea or understanding. And when we look to the revelation of God, we see that it's not any outward sign that is most important. It's the heart that God looks at. That's what matters. And when we see the heart, there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile or anywhere else. All are sinners and fallen short of God's glory. And so that no distinction comes up that say we're all sinners, yet God's grace is free to all of us. Just as there's no distinction between our hearts and their sinfulness, there's no distinction in God's grace. God's grace is not pointed toward one group or another. It's not leaning or shifting to this or to that. God's grace is for everyone who believes. If it's not, it's not grace. You see, Peter recognized that the gospel itself was at stake. And Peter stepped up at this moment and said, put no yoke or no burden on anyone who proclaims the gospel or anyone who would receive the gospel. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that we give the new formula the old formula is Jesus plus the works of the law equals salvation, right? The new formula is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is the one who satisfies the law of God for us. Jesus is the one who cleanses us from all our unrighteousness and washes us clean. Jesus is the one who changes our heart. In fact, in Jeremiah, it says he rips out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And he writes his own law on our hearts. So when we're saved, it is the conversion that we have come from a dead, rock-hard heart 
to a heart that is alive to receive the word of God and to live for him. Jesus is the one who gives us a new heart. And Paul and Barnabas, having heard the word of Peter, says, that's it. Let me tell you the testimony of what he has done. And my friends, in this room here this morning is the living testimony of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. How he has brought from all areas of the world and all nations and all tribes and all tongues. In this room, even this morning, God has united us who were seemingly separate to the world, but we have been united with one thing, a new heart in Jesus Christ and a love for him. Paul and Barnabas says, let me show y'all all that he does and all that he has done with the Gentiles and with others. And they rejoiced. And after they finished speaking, James replied. Now, this is James, the brother of Jesus. If you remember correctly, James, the brother of John, who was a disciple, had been killed already by a sword by Herod. But here is James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, if you will, who has risen to the leader of the church in, in, in Jerusalem. And this is the same James who writes the book of James. And so this is an important point, I think, that he makes. For here, James first goes to the scriptures in Amos. Y'all know Amos? We went through Amos. See how glad y'all are we did the summer in the minors? In Amos chapter 9, he says, The Gentiles were called by my name. The Lord will rebuild it, rebuild his work. And so ultimately, he's saying, you see, this is just fulfilling the scriptures. The Old Testament actually told us the Gentiles will come in. And so we welcome them in. This is just fulfilling the scriptures. Peter's message is, is what we call a message of justification by faith alone. In other words, we are saved before God. He declares us righteous, not because of any work we have done, not because of anything special on our account. He declares us righteous simply by trusting in him in faith, right? So justification is, comes to us, as Peter says, through this faith alone. But James wants to make a distinction. And he does this in James chapter 2, verse 14. Over in his letter, he, he lays this out. And again, maybe having this event in mind when he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works, James says. In other words, James is making a distinction. We are declared righteous simply by faith. But we will demonstrate that righteousness by how we live. In other words, there's this difference here for James that he wants to make clear that oftentimes can get misconstrued. You see, the difference is the gospel changes your heart and transforms your life. And he didn't want the Gentiles to think, oh, I can come in and take the gospel and just continue living how I'm supposed to live. No, he says, this is the request I make for you. Remind them to destroy their idols, abstain from those things, flee sexual immorality, flee what's been strangled from blood from ancient generations. Moses proclaimed these things for our good, he's saying. In other words, he's saying, you are saved simply by trusting and believing in Jesus, but that salvation is going to be demonstrated in how you live, Gentiles. It's going to be demonstrated in how you live. 
They keep the works of the law. You see, they thought the works of the law were what would make them righteous, but that's not it. Jesus' righteousness transferred to them is the only thing that can make them righteous. But keeping the works of the law will demonstrate their righteousness before God. So it's not as if the law is useless to them. It becomes a way they show their relationship and transform their lives as believers. Maybe James here is showing that some of the believers of the Pharisees' party's concerns are correct. You can't just come and, and say, I believe, and then live how you want to. That testifies that you truly don't believe. But by believing, Jesus is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. By believing that, you will live a life that honors him and glorifies him. You will live a life of holiness. Pure gospel, that's what this passage is about. Can't add anything to it. We don't take anything away from it. And that pure gospel that salvation comes to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, we're all sinners and we're all desperate for a Savior. Jesus is the only one. Call on his name and you can be saved. That pure gospel is available to everyone. And the moment we hinder anyone from coming to it, we need to have the wrath of Paul and Barnabas coming down on us like they came down in Acts 15. In fact, Paul says to the Galatians in this real strong language, some say you must be circumcised. I would rather them mutilate themselves. Why does Paul say that? Because to add anything to the gospel is to stop people from coming to the gospel. It's a man-made contraption that pushes people away and not welcomes them in, or the gospel is what welcomes them in. The pure gospel available to all and all who believe, Gentile and Jew, will live holy lives before the Lord. That's what comes out of Acts 15. My fear for us, as we close, is that many of us can become closet Judaizers in our life. Before we realize it or recognize it, we can add things to the gospel ourselves. We put things on people when they come to faith and we put in our mind what, what they need to look like or what they need to do or how they need to act, but oftentimes we make those things or add those things to the gospel. May we not become closet Judaizers. May we be a people that preach and teach and proclaim the true gospel. Anyone, y'all hear what I'm saying, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But not only that, we need to assess our own view of the gospel. Does obedience eclipse the cross? Do we think we're getting to heaven just because we're really good people? Or do we presume upon grace and live a flippant life? Do we presume upon the gospel and live how we want to and disregard transformation? Either one of these will not only stunt our growth in faith like the Pharisees, but it will hinder the advancement of the gospel and what we proclaim and what we preach and what we teach. Here's what makes me want to share the gospel more. Because I don't have to add anything to it. It's enough. Jesus is enough. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for being enough. 
that we need no other thing to do. There is no other hoop to jump through. There is no other offer we have to make or we have to accept. It is just this, that we are sinners and Jesus is a Savior who saves us from our sins. And so, God, let that be enough for us. For that's the true gospel. Father, help us now in this room not to be closet Judaizers either, but that we become faithful to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus to all people everywhere. May we say along with the Apostle Paul, we consider no one according to the flesh, but by the grace of God, we proclaim the gospel so that they would believe. And if anyone is here today, Father, that needs to believe the gospel, and today you have shown them that they've been adding stuff to it, or they, even in their own heart, have, have put things on themselves that have hindered them from coming forward, may you remove those and help them to see it is simply trusting in Jesus and all he has done for us by faith. The true gospel is calling upon the name of the Lord in recognition that he and he alone can save us. And Father, all of us who've called on him have found him to be enough. God, may we all find Jesus today to be enough in our life, to live and to testify. By your grace, we stand together and sing.